Glad you guys are here. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel 25. Last week I mentioned our missionaries of several missionary families that are overseas. Many of them are working in some of the most difficult areas to reach in the world. Um, and I encourage y'all, grab one of those sheets of paper on your way out. It's on the welcome uh, on that little kiosk deal. And it's got a list of all missionaries who consider Stonebridge their home church. And I want you to give to some of them. I don't care who. Just find somebody and give where your treasure is, your heart will be. And what I'm really wanting is, is I'm wanting you to give, and I'm wanting you to give as an anchor so that you'll pray, so that you'll pray that these regions will um, will be changed. When I was there a couple of weeks ago, I was in Turkey in two different cities, in, in uh, Bosnia and in Sarajevo in the capital, and there there's not much happening spiritually. And it's going to take a, a groundswell of the activity of the Lord to really see numbers of people coming to faith. So there's actually a community for people to be one into. Right now, it's, it's individuals. It's one coming or two coming. And you can imagine how difficult that would be if you're literally the only Christian in your school or if you're literally the only Christian in your neighborhood, how hard it would be over time to continue to be faithful. And so I want you to give, and I want you to give for giving's sake, and I want you to give for the sake of... Of prayer, So grab onto that. And I was thinking about giving in general as well. One of the reasons we give is it's an expression of what kingdom we're a part of. Jesus says you can't serve God and money. You've got to pick. The kingdom of money is based on scarcity. There's not, there's a limited amount and I've got to hold on to what I have. The kingdom of God is based on abundance. God owns everything. It's all his and he can always provide more. And so every time you give, whether that's to missions, whether that's here at Stonebridge, whether that's to somebody who has a, a need, uh, some other charity that you're passionate about. Every time you give, what you're declaring, I hope, is that you live in this in the kingdom of God. You live in a kingdom of abundance. And you recognize that the key is not to hold on to what you have. It's to give away, and that frees you up to receive more from the Lord. And every time we hold on, we're, we're living in the kingdom of money, which, again, it's a scarcity mentality. There's a limited amount, and I've got to grasp and squeeze uh, and hold tightly to what I have. So anyway, I, I thought of that last week and I, did, I failed to mention it. So for what that's worth. All right. First Samuel 25. Last week, David tested by the Lord. Tests are orchestrated by God. We're supposed to uh, walk through them. We're, we, we want to pass the test. It's circumstances that are designed to see what's in us. It's an opportunity to demonstrate what's in our heart. David is tested. He has an opportunity to kill Saul, who has been pursuing him relentlessly for five plus years, hunting him down, David says, like a dog. And he finally has an opportunity to do something about it. And his men are pressuring him. They're saying, this is God's opportunity. He's given you this chance to do something about this. And David feels that pressure to do something. But he doesn't give in. He passed the test. You can see there in verse 12, God, David says, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not raising my hand against Saul. God will judge Saul for the wrongs that he's done to me. He's going to avenge me and God's going to deliver me and put me on the throne in his time. But I'm not going to raise my hand against Saul. David passed this test. And today we're going to see David tempted. Being tempted is not the same thing as being tested. We're tempted by the enemy. We're being lured into sin. We resist temptation. Today, David is tempted. Last week tested, this week tempted. He's going to have an opportunity again to exact vengeance on someone, but this time the guy's a creep. He's not a king. He's not someone who's kind of, quote, protected by God. He's someone who insults David uh, in David's mind significantly. And David has an opportunity to do something about it. He's tempted 
to do so. And we'll see in chapter 25 how he responds in the face of that temptation. It's a long story, but there's no, we've got to plow through the whole thing today because it's, it's all of a piece. So just hang with me. Verse 1, now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Then David mourned. Or excuse me, then David moved down to the desert of Paran. So Samuel, the prophet, is dead. That comes into play in a future chapters. It's not super significant uh, here in chapter 25. A certain man in Maon who had property there in Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men. Since we come at a festive time, please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, and they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their master these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I've slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. We'll pause there. So, introduced to two people, main characters in this chapter other than David. Nabal, his wife Abigail. Abigail's beautiful and intelligent. When you hear intelligent, think wise or someone with good insight. Nabal is the opposite. He's really rich. Wealth was in livestock, really rich. He was a Calebite, so a kinsman of David, far removed for sure, but same tribe, Judah. And he was surly, so he was cruel, he was hard, he was stubborn, and he was mean in his dealings with people. So uh, he was evil or wicked in the way he treated other people. So during the time when the, the sheep are grazing and the goats are grazing, Nabal's shepherds are out in the wilderness, and that's where David is. Nobody owns the land, so it's no one's land. It's just a wilderness area. David and his men are living in caves or trying to avoid Saul. Nabal sends his shepherds out because that's where there's enough space for his livestock to eat. And as they're grazing, David and his men make a choice, and they choose to protect them. Now, remember we said last week, these guys don't have much to eat. They're not able to raise crops because they're always on the move. They don't have their own herds because they're always on the move. I think they're basically scavengers. And now we've got some animals right here. And he's got 600 guys who are armed. It would not be hard to take some at all. Not difficult at all. And, and he doesn't. And it's not just that he doesn't take from Nabal. He actually protects his shepherds and he protects Nabal's flocks. And so now it's... it's uh, Spring or fall, shear the sheep twice, and it's a really festive time. And so David sends ten guys to Nabal. So you imagine how many, uh, how much food a, a guy could carry, whatever, how many grocery bags you can carry at one time. It's ten times that is not enough to feed six hundred. So it's not like David is saying feed all of us indefinitely. Again, I think they're basically scavengers, and this is an opportunity for them to get something that tastes a little better, and, and maybe just a bite. 
Again, he only sends 10 guys. It's not like all 600 show up at Nabal's door and say, feed us. And they go, and what they say to him is basically, we were kind to you and your people when they were in the wilderness. And here's an opportunity for you to be kind back. That word favorable is gracious. It's, it's used when, for an act when someone who has something gives to someone who needs something. So that's what David is doing. He's going and saying, you have plenty. We, we don't. And we're giving you an opportunity to give to us. We were kind to you. Here's an opportunity for you to reciprocate and to be kind back. There's no formal arrangement between them at all. There's no deal. It's just an opportunity. They showed hospitality to Nabal's uh, shepherds when they were in the wilderness. And it's an opportunity for Nabal to show hospitality back to David. And Nabal's response, we know he's mean in his dealings, is not gracious at all. He doesn't just reject David, he insults him. He knows something of his his history and he's saying, "Who, who are you? You're some rogue you're a slave who's broken away from his master. Like, why, why would I give you any of my stuff? Why, why should I do that for you? And David's response is strong. 400 guys. Let's go. So we've seen David get pushed around a lot. We saw this graphic last week. David moves from place to place to place to place to place to place as he's being pursued by Saul. He lives in the wilderness. He lives in caves. He lives in foreign cities. He travels hundreds of miles. This is years of his life, at least five, probably closer to 10 years of his life. He is running from Saul and we never see him raise his hand against Saul. The most we've seen him do was last week, cut a corner of Saul's road. He's immediately convicted and says, I, no, I'm out. I'm not going to do anything against him. We've seen him pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. Now, Nabal insults him 100%. He insults him. He's not kind. He's not gracious. The response seems a bit disproportionate to me. 400 guys with swords. Let's go. So either it's like the straw that broke the camel's back. It's David has been pushed and pushed and pushed and Nabal's just the unlucky guy who does the thing that pushes David over the edge. Or what I think is more likely is this is who David is. I think he is a, I think he runs high. I think he's a fighter. I think he's a warrior. I think he's a, has a fierce personality. And I think the fact that he never takes vengeance on Saul is a testament to the grace of God and the power of the spirit in his life. I think David on his own is this. I think he's the guy who says, you insult me, let's go. We're going to fight. Remember, he's 16 or 17 years old, never been in the army ever. And he sees Goliath, who's nine something feet tall and says, yeah, I'll, I'll take him. That, he, that's what he does. Who does that? That is his personality. In First Chronicles, David, with the best of intentions, says to the Lord, I want to build a temple for you. And you know what God says? You've killed too many people. That's the response. There's too much blood on your hands. You've shed too much blood. You can't do it. Your son will. At this point in time, to be a king is to be a warrior. They're at the front of the army. There's a point in the, we'll see it in 2 Samuel, where David's men are begging him, you have got to stop fighting. You're too old. Don't come out with us anymore. It's who he is. His job is to secure the borders of Israel. God gave them dirt. And during the period of the judges, because they've been disobedient for so long, those borders have become very porous. The Philistines are coming in. They're taking back territory. You see it with Saul. You see it particularly with David. His job is to be here the lines. 
This is what God has given us. And if you cross them, we're killing you. That's what David does. He is a warrior. That, and he's temperamentally wired to do that. And I think that's who he really is. And I think Nabal, he picked on the wrong guy. And I think David left to his own devices. This is how he settles things. And again, it's a miracle of God that he never reacts against Saul, that he never responds violently towards Saul, because I think this is who he is. And we'll see where that leads in verse 14. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us. And the whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, there were a wall around us the whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. So the servant goes to Abigail like, you don't do that. Women don't, they don't, this isn't their world. So the fact that he goes to Abigail just shows how much of a fool Nabal is that he would go to the, to his wife and say, you've got to do something about this. And again, his, um, Recollection underscores what David said about how they treated Nabal's men. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there was David and his men descending toward her. So you picture that. 400 guys with swords. And she met them. David had just said, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness, so that nothing of his was missing. He paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. You got that? He's killing them all. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey, bowed down before David with her face to the ground, and she said, Pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. I'm not sure why his parents named him fool. As for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, that's Saul, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord success, remember your servant. David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you. If you had not come quickly to meet me, 
Not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she brought him and said, Go home in peace. I have heard your words and granted your request. We're going to come back to this. It's the turning point in the story. But what I want you to see is she goes out and her purpose is to dissuade David from whatever he's intending. She has a sense. The servant has a sense. There's something bad is going to happen. And so she, she takes initiative, which is unheard of. Women did not do things without their husband's permission. Women did not send gifts to other men. And women certainly did not go out on the road and talk to strange men. Everything she does is, is beyond unconventional. It would have been scandalous in so many ways. But she takes initiative and she does it. She's intelligent. She's wise. She, she has good judgment. And so she steps in where her husband has fallen down on the job. And David responds. She says, don't do this. And he says, okay. If it hadn't been for you, he recognizes God sent her. God sent you to me. He recognizes she's a messenger from God to him to get him to change course. And he pulls back. And he recognizes in this, his statement, that what he was intending to do was a sin. Even in a justice-oriented culture, if you want to go eye for eye, that's, that's not what he's doing here. His response is, is massively disproportionate to the wrong that's been done him. And he recognizes that after Abigail brings it up. Verse 36. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she is saving his skin and he is getting drunk. She told him nothing at all until daybreak. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. So he probably had a stroke. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, praise be to the Lord. Compassion there from David. Who's upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He's kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. Didn't waste any time. His servant went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to take you to become his wife. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, I'm your servant and I'm ready to serve you and wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her five female servants, went with David's messengers and became his wife. David had also married a Hinoam of Jezreel and they both were his wives. But Saul had given his daughter, Michael, David's wife, to Paltiel, son of Laash, who was from Gallim. So, God avenges David. And so last week we saw David say to his men and say to Saul, I'm not touching you. I'm going to let God be the judge between me and you. He's going to avenge me for the wrongs you've done me. He's going to judge you. and He's going to deliver me. He's going to put me on the throne. And then David goes back to his cave and Saul goes back to ruling and reigning. And here what you see is a very quick turnaround. David says, all right, Abigail, you're right, I'm wrong. He turns around and goes home. And within a week and a half, Nabal's dead. And it's very clear, God, God killed him. He has a stroke when Abigail tells him what, what she did. And ten days later, God kills him. God, and David recognizes, this is the Lord. God is avenging me on my enemies. This guy treated me contemptuously, and God has judged him for that. So that probably is encouragement, I would think. For David as he is languishing in the wilderness, waiting on God to do something about Saul, 
for both him and for his men to see such a quick turnaround here. It's reinforcing. There's, there's wisdom and righteousness in waiting upon the Lord. And then we see this thing, which to us, honestly, is weird, that he pretty quickly asked Abigail to be his wife. I imagine if Nabal is who he is depicted to be, she was probably pretty miserable as his wife uh, anyway. And I think she has a sense of what's going to happen when she says to David in her speech, may all your enemies be like Nabal. Well, at that point, Nabal is fat and rich and happy, and that's not what she's wishing for people. She must have some sense, either prophetically from the Lord, that Nabal's going to die quickly, or maybe it's just a conviction that Nabal has made himself an enemy of God, or has made himself an enemy of David, which makes him an enemy of God, and God is going to judge him. And so she knows, in an ultimate sense, Nabal is going to be dealt with because God is going to deal with all of David's enemies. And she says, remember me, which makes no sense unless she has some, unless she has, again, some sense that there's going to be a time when Nabal is not in the picture, there's nothing else David could do for her. She's, a, she's married. There, there's nothing he could do in terms of remembering her unless Nabal is out of the picture. So I don't know what she knew, but she seemed to know something or have some sense of something. And so David brings her in and he proposes. Maybe it's the first ever, like, give the note to the guy and go ask her if I like you. And they do that. And she responds. And so she comes back to him. Unfortunately, we don't have time to talk about bigamy this morning. I'm sure you would love to do that. That's not where we're going to go. But I will say this just real briefly about marriage. Ideal, Genesis 2.24. One man, one woman, forever. That's the ideal. Anything other than that is missing the mark. Missing the mark is another way of saying sin. And there are variations. There's a continuum. There's divorce, which is over here. And there's sometimes where divorce has to happen. And God hates it. But he can redeem. And so that, that there's nothing in marriage that, or divorce or remarriage. None of those things are the unforgivable sin. God can redeem anything. And we see in the Old Testament, we see several men married to multiple women. We don't see any of that in the New Testament. Never was God's ideal. And we see people who love the Lord and who are pillars of our faith married to multiple women. And there's two main reasons. One is a a desire to produce a male heir. And so everything passed through sons. If you didn't have a son, there was a lot of uh, tenuousness in terms of your your legacy and your who who was going to receive your inheritance. And so you even see women bringing other women to their husbands and saying produce a male heir through her because it's not happening through me. And then with the kings, particularly, you see a lot of political alliances being formed through marriage. And you can look, nothing good comes from bigamy or polygamy. It was not God's best by any stretch. And again, by the time of Jesus, we don't see that at all. For us, Genesis 2.24 is a picture of marriage that God's ideal. Anything other than that is missing the mark. And God can redeem all of those situations. For some of you, that's very personal You just need to know, like, divorce, remarriage, those things all fall under the umbrella of his redemption and of his grace. So, Nabal, David, Abigail. Two things for you to think about. One's uh, kind of squishy, has to do with your heart. One's a little more concrete, has to do with your behavior. With David, we see uh, an illustration of a New Testament truth found in 1 Corinthians 10. That God always provides a way out when we're tempted. 
as a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't have to sin. You're going to sin, but you don't have to sin. It's not fated. It's not an inevitability. God always provides an opportunity for us to get out. There's a, there's a door. Abigail is the door for David. He is intent on sinning, and she confronts him on the road, and he changes his mind. He repents when she confronts him. God always does that for us. The question is, do I have a heart, and do you have a heart that's responsive to him? I want you to try to put yourself in David's shoes as much as you can, and I want you to think about how hard it was to turn around on that road. I want you to just imagine that, the personal insult that from Nabal, and we don't really live, we don't live in an honor-shame culture, so it's hard for us to really feel the weight of that insult, but he was deeply offended by the way Nabal treated his ten guys. He's got 400 guys that he has keyed up to fight. They, in my thinking, have probably been scavenging for a lot of time, and they're probably thinking, we wipe out the men, we get it all. We get the 3,000 sheep, we get the 1,000 goats, we get the wine, we get the money, we get the women. They get it all. It's all theirs because all the guys are gone. So they're probably thinking that. And they've gotten keyed up to fight. And David has just made this public vow before the Lord and his men. May God deal with me, be it ever so severely. That's a vow if I don't wipe out everyone in Nabal's men. So he has just publicly said before his men and the Lord, this is what I'm intending to do. This is my course of action. This is not a threat. I'm going to kill them. That's what he is headed to do. And now a woman, again, we can't fathom how insignificant women were in this culture. It's hard for us to to recognize that. No status at all. Highly inappropriate for a woman to speak to a man. This is a, a woman. He's never met her. No relationship with her. She's married to the guy who has insulted him. She is beautiful. It's her persuasive. What, what does she have in terms of persuading David to change his mind? He has all of this momentum to, to follow through and to kill Nabal and the men in that house. And then we have one woman, Abigail, who says don't do it. Can you imagine, I'm trying to figure out, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking the depth of humility in David to be able in that moment to say, you're right. That's what he said, you're right. I'm about to sin. God sent you to me to keep me from avenging myself. She says, the weight of what you're going to do, it will be staggering. Your conscience is going to be heavy. God is going to put you on the throne. You don't want to live with this. And he says, you're right. This is a sin. You've kept me from wrongdoing. Can you imagine the heart of David that is able in that moment with all of his hurt, pride, and again, the momentum, 400 guys following him to say, I messed up. This is a sin. We're turning around and going home. That's what it means to have a, 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 a to be a man after God's own heart. It's not just that we've said before he's definitely not perfect in terms of his behavior, but his heart's not perfect either. It's he, he's responsive. He can hear God even through a very unexpected source, Abigail. Do you have the same type of heart? Can you hear the Lord? even through an unexpected source, whatever Abigail would be for you, whether that's through a child or through your 
a coworker who you really don't like very much or, or don't respect? Can you hear the voice of God through an unexpected source? Is your heart so soft before him, so responsive to him, that even if it's coming from an Abigail, you can say, that's right, and I'm going to change my behavior based on what was said to me. It's a Psalm of David, 139. 20, I think it's either 23 and 24 or 24 and 25. Search me, God, and know me. Test me. I, I need to know if there's any way, anything in me that's offensive to you. That's a Psalm of David. I think it's something that was an attitude, a disposition of his, and that's what allowed him to be turned by Abigail. I would encourage you in your own time with the Lord to pray that prayer regularly, weekly. God, you've got to show me. I don't know what's going on in my own heart. You've got to show me. Show me my blind spots. And most likely the way he's going to show you your blind spots is through somebody else. It's great. We love it when it's just us and it's private and nobody else has to know. That's not reality a lot of the time. The reason they're blind spots is because we can't see them. And so what God tends to do is bring somebody who serves as a mirror. And oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes, we don't love the mirror a whole lot. And what the, the question is, can, can you still receive? Can you still hear the voice of God? I worked for a guy one time, and, and he, he said there was someone in his life who was very difficult for him to deal with. And this person was in a position of authority in his life. And, and I remember listening to an exchange. I was like, how, do you, how are you sitting through that? And he said, there's 10% of it's good. And I'm thinking, that's not enough. Like, that's not a high enough ratio for me. 90% is not good and 10% is good. He had a better heart than me. Where's that level of responsiveness in you? Somebody unexpected, maybe somebody that you don't respect, holding up a mirror. Do you have a heart that can respond, that can hear the voice of God? Behavioral, very concrete. She's willing takes a lot of courage. David has humility. Abigail has courage. She's willing to, to turn David from his path of sin, to at least try. She's willing to stand in the way and say, don't do this. And again, if you can imagine the courage that it takes. Courage is not a lack of fear. It's feeling fear and not giving in. To be courageous doesn't mean that you, you're never afraid. It means fear is not the boss of you. It doesn't drive you. And we see that with Abigail. Again, she's an unarmed woman going out to meet a strange man she's never met who she knows is coming to wreak havoc on her home. She doesn't know what he's going to do, but she knows he's mad. He's been insulted and he's coming and she knows enough about his reputation to know he's a fighter. And he's, he's coming. And she goes out there and is willing to literally stand in the road and say, don't, you don't want to do this. Don't come any farther. This is a sin. Think about the courage that that takes for her to do that. What about you? We live in community, brothers and sisters. There's a small minority of people who love this. It's like it's permission to rebuke somebody. And they're, they're rebukers among us. And they, you know who you are. And you love getting to tell somebody where they're stepping out of line. For most of us, we don't enjoy this at all. We don't enjoy the idea of having to say to somebody, I, I, I see where you're going and it's not good. 
I'm looking at the way you're living. It's going to lead to destruction. For most of us, we want anybody other than us to get picked to do that. We can go, you know, I have a log in my own eye, so I can't take the speck out of yours. Obviously, there's truth in that. But for most of us, it's just, it's uncomfortable. And we don't like it. We don't think it's our place. We feel judgmental or self-righteous or smug or any number of things that keep us from saying to a brother or a sister, this isn't good. This is not a good course of action. And Abigail is willing to stand up and say to David, this is not a good course of action. And notice for him, it saves him. If you can imagine what kind of king he would have become if he had given in to this temptation, he would have been Saul. When the town, when uh, Ahimelech helps David unknowingly, doesn't know he's, he's doing anything against Saul, he's just helping David. Saul finds out what is he wipes out the whole town, men, women, children, all of them. That's the temptation for David. You're going to be a man with power. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to use it to accomplish your own purposes or not? If David goes through with this, he's just like Saul. There's a lot at stake here, not just Nabal's life. There's a lot more at stake here in terms of the future of Israel. And Abigail's courage, her willingness to step in, saves David. Are you willing to do the same as a brother or a sister? Not, not talking about people who don't know the Lord. Within the family of God, are you willing to say to someone who you have a relationship with, with someone you love, hey, this is not great. This is this, not talking about preference or opinion. I'm talking righteousness and wickedness. This road that you're on, it doesn't look good to me. I feel like you're moving away from the Lord. I feel like this is a, a decision that it's not, it's not trusting, it's not full of faith, it's not righteous. It's going to lead you down a bad road. Are you willing to say that. So y'all have heard rhino, hedgehog. Everybody's heard that little um, contrast when it comes to conflict. So when you think about this type of uh, interaction, it, there's confrontation is in it. It's a confrontational reaction, even if you don't feel that way. It may not be conflict, but there's confrontation. And some of us are wired to step in, and most of us are wired to step away from that. What you can see, whichever way you're wired from Abigail, the goal is to make yourself hearable. The the goal is to be heard. The goal is for the person you're speaking to to repent. It's not for you to be right. It's for them to repent. If they can't receive what you're saying, you can check the box that you said what you needed to, but it hasn't produced fruit in their life. And so with Abigail, if you tend to be a rhino, you're someone who charges into And maybe you can look behind and see some people that you've trampled. If that's you, what Abigail would say to you is, like, be sweet on the front end. Look at what she does. She uses some sugar. Here's a she she sends this this train of donkeys full of food before David before David meets her. David's met five dressed sheep and five bags of grain and two skins of wine and a hundred figs and 200 cakes of raisins. Like he's met all of this food before he sees her. It's going to soften you up, isn't it? It's going to make you maybe a bit more amenable to what somebody would say. And so by the time she gets there, maybe some of the edge has been taken off. And then notice her posture. She doesn't come out and say, David, you're sinning. You should know better. She lays down in front of him. 
She speaks very respectfully towards him. She apologizes for something. There's, she says, I'm sorry I didn't see your men. What? I don't even know what that is. The servants never would have engaged with her at all. There's no scenario where servants from David engage with Abigail. There, there's no way that works. There's no reason for her to have seen them. And yet she apologizes for it. Anything that she can do to uh, make herself hearable to David. It's not manipulative. It's wise. Again, she's a wise woman. She has good judgment. She's softening the blow for him. Making it, it, hopefully, causing him to open himself up a bit to what she may say. Again, they're strangers. They've never met before. They have no relationship. If you tend to be a rhino, and you tend to charge in and say, this is the truth, and you need to hear it, and that's, they're, okay. It doesn't do any good if they actually can't hear it because you put them on the defensive. You may be right, there's no fruit. What would it look like for you to maybe send a train of donkeys in front of you with some food on it? What would it look like for you to take a posture of respect towards somebody else? Maybe even make sure, is there anything that you've done in the relationship that maybe could have made it, make it more difficult for them to hear from you? Again, the goal is not for you to be right. The goal is for them to repent. And if they can't hear what you're saying, there's, there's nothing there. There's no fruit there. Most of us, I think, maybe tend to withdraw. We tend to pull back. We're kind of hedgehogs and we see confrontation. We're like, pick somebody else. That's not my job. I have people call me all the time who say, hey, can you talk to so-and-so about this? No, I can't talk to so-and-so about this. At all can I not do that. And that's, for most of us, we want, we want somebody who we can... God, just pick someone else. And we tend to pull back. What Abigail says to us is at some point, you got to say it. She's direct, absolutely respectful, takes a posture of humility before David. But she says, don't do this. This is needless. This is you avenging yourself with your own hands. Your conscience is going to be heavy for years If you do this, this is needless blood that you would be shedding. She says it. And at some point, for those of us who tend to pull back from those kinds of confrontations, at some point, do I not say, I I see you moving in a path that's destructive. If I love you, do I not say anything? At what point do I have to step in and and be direct? For sure, respectful and kind, but you got to say it. This is a sin. This is a sin. You can't keep doing this. This is destructive for you. It's destructive for the people that you love. You've got to change what you're doing. So wherever you fall on that continuum in terms of confrontation, Abigail has something to say. Now, there are times where we wonder, is it right? I see this. I don't think it's right. But I'm not sure it's my place. It's not necessarily out of fear. It's a genuine questioning. Is it my place? Is this the right time? Can they hear this from me? When that's been in my own life, my little trick, it's not necessarily the Bible, it's just what I've done and it seems to have worked and maybe it would work for you, is I get in my head what I would say. here's Here's the little bullet points. Here's what I would say if I had the opportunity. So if it's less, here's what I would say to him. But I don't know if it's my spot to say. Again, not because I'm afraid, but because I genuinely don't know. Is this right? 
for me to share this with less. And then what I say is, God, if it's right, then I need you to have less ask me the question. I just need him to ask me the question. This is what I'll say if he asks me the question. But I need him to ask me the question. And that's how I'll know that it's, that it's okay for me to share this. So there are times where you absolutely, you feel convicted and you know you've got to talk. And it doesn't matter whether you have an open door or not. You just have to share it. But I'm talking about the times where you genuinely, not out of fear, but you genuinely don't know. Is this something that needs to be said to them by me? What I do again is I get in my mind what I would share. And then I just say, Lord, open the door. Have him ask me the question. And I can give you multiple, multiple times where people have sat down in front of me and they've asked me the question. And then I've had to I've said, okay, now that you bring that up, here's, here's what I would say about that. And I can also give you multiple, multiple times where they never did. And so to me, that's a, you call it a fleece, whatever you want. Again, it's not, it's not rooted in fear. There are plenty of times where I'm afraid to have the confrontation. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is a genuine not knowing. And you may find yourself in that spot. I can think particularly in work situations where you see something, you're like, that's my boss. Do I say something? I don't know. Well, God, if this is what I would say, have him sit down and ask me the question. Have him sit down and ask me a question. Maybe it's an in-law. And you're like, I don't know about this. They're not inviting me back to Thanksgiving if this is. And so, and you wonder, is this, does this need to be said? Well, this is what I would say, God, if, if it is, then you have them ask. Let's open the door. Have them ask me the question. Those kind of tricky things where you're just unsure relationally. Is this your place? Again, not where you have conviction, but where you're genuinely questioning. That's what I would encourage you to think through. It's not foolproof, but it does seem... Um, to be a wise approach. We're going to take a few minutes and pray. Kaylee's going to come back. This is what I want you to do if you wouldn't mind if you close your eyes. I'll give you two things I want you to think about before the Lord. And then we'll have an opportunity for you to receive prayer and to pray for some other, uh, pray for people in your own life uh, on the back end of this song. So two things I want you to think about. One, just the question before the Lord. God, is my heart responsive to you? I don't know if convictable is a word. God, am I convictable? Can you move me? The prayer I would encourage you to pray right now, if you're willing, is is from Psalm 139. It's that prayer of David. God, search me. God, know me. Are there any anxious thoughts in me? That is, are there places in my life where I'm not trusting you? I'm anxious in the places where I'm not trusting. Where are those places? God, am I doing anything that's offensive to you? Would you show me my own heart? And I think it's fine to pray this. God, my preference would be for you just to show me. Let's just keep this between us. Ultimately, God, I want to know. And if the only way for me to know is for you to send me an Abigail, give me ears to hear. Give me ears to hear. Some of you, you may want to think about this. You may want to think about you being an Abigail. Maybe there's a difficult relationship in your own life. You're at a bit of a stalemate or maybe there's Unfortunately, a lack of relationship. I'm thinking particularly uh, among the family of God here. 
God, is there something that needs to be said? Does it need to come from me? It very well could be that the first two words that need to be said are, I'm sorry. God, it it could be that there's someone in your life that's not a relational um, barrier between you, but someone you love who is a believer, someone who commitment to Jesus and you're watching them go down in flames. Maybe make, would you be willing to make yourself available this morning as an Abigail? Even a reluctant one. God, I don't want to do it. But if, if the choices are to continue to see my friend or my family member crash and burn, or to step in, I'll step in. Give me the words. Give me the opportunity. So Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts this morning? We thank you that you're always pursuing us. Always. That you never give up on us. That you go to such great lengths, God, to secure not just our salvation, but our sanctification. You send us Abigail's. us from sinning and we want to be we want to heed those warnings and God sometimes you send us again in your great love for other people to keep them from walking down a destructive road we may be the ones to turn them back God would you give us grace to do that so would you come now in these next couple of moments and speak into every one of our hearts God show us our own hearts Show us our role in the lives of the people that we love to help them become more like you in Jesus' name.